Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelations, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. The book of Revelation, verses 9 through 17. This is the word of God. Listen, please. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels of angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no longer, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, be merciful to us and speak to us this morning. We came here to hear from you alone. We came here to worship your name. And we came here with this great hope to be with you forever in heaven one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In difficult times, what is it that keeps Christians going in the Christian walk? I think that it's to consider the prize that is before us. The hope of heaven drives and energizes our life here on earth. Mature Christians were always encouraged by the hope of glory that awaits us in the future. The Puritans, for example, they were big on this. They thought that the way to go through life was to stamp, to have heaven stamp before our eyes. Paul talks about the hope laid up for us in heaven. That kept him strong. 
through tribulation. In Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Also, in the letters that we see in Revelation, we find this promising formula at the end. To him who persevere, I will give him. And then we have a reward. We have a heavenly manna. We have a crown of glory. One day, believers will be given this crown of glory. Today, we're going to look at a glimpse of the end. The day of the victory of Jesus Christ and of his church in heaven. But what does it look like? What does heaven look like? Why should we be motivated to go there? What is it all about? Well, this vision is going to help us to answer those questions because it is a preview of the church triumphant, a preview of heaven, a foretaste of it. As we go through tribulations that assail our faith, this message is meant to energize us to press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's my hope for you this morning. And we are going to expose our message in four thoughts. First, we're going to look at this mixed multitude. Second, we are going to see what they are doing. Third, we are going to look at their identity, the identity of the multitude. And fourth and last, we are going to take a look at the bliss of the multitude. A mixed multitude, what they are doing, the identity of the multitude, and the bliss of the multitude. Let us start with a mixed multitude. Revelation 7, verses 3 through 8, speak of a crowd, of an exact number, 144,000. Verse 9, it speaks again of a multitude, of a crowd. What is the relationship between the two? Well, they are the same. As Pastor Rob has already explained, the number of the sealed people of God, this 144,000 is not a literal number. It should not be understood literally. In similar way, the Israel mentioned in verse 4 of chapter 7 does not refer to ethnic Jews only, but to the church of God. Verse 3, in verse 3 of chapter 7, the first crowd is qualified as God's servants. And they are sealed. These are things that characterize all the elect of God. And we are not to suppose that different from this first multitude, the second one is not sealed. Verse 9 also says that they are, actually verse 15 say that they are actually God's servants as well. 
for they serve God day and night, day and night. These two multitudes are the same people of God, only looked at from a different perspective. What is an exact number to God is uncountable to us. And what in our eyes would be a great multi-ethnic multitude is in God's eyes. His Israel, his one church, his one church. So the vision that we have here is what Westminster Confession teaches us in chapter 25 in paragraph 1. It is the whole people of God from all generations gather together, gather together. So this message is for the church. It is for us, to all of us who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is to all of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. This text gives us a few characteristics of the church in heaven. Verse 9 says that it is a great multitude. It is a great multitude. No one can count them. God promised that to Abraham. You shall be father of a multitude of nations. And this was not fulfilled in the ethnic Israel. David, if you remember, could count the Israelites. But this multitude that John sees, no man, no man could count. And as Christians, sometimes we can look at ourselves as an insignificant minority of people in a worldly society, an unimportant group of people. We can look at ourselves as Elijah did. He complained to the Lord, Lord, only I was left alone. And the Lord said, no, you are wrong. You are part of a, a bigger group. And this is the church of God. We are part of this large host that refuses to bow the knee to idols. And that refuses to compromise our faith, no matter the situation. And one day, we'll be in God's presence together. This is the first feature that we see, the first feature of heaven that we see in this text. But we also see that this host represents, that represents the triumphant church in heaven is multi-ethnic. They are from every nation, tribes, people, and languages. That includes the ethnic Jews, but not limited to them. And I think, I can think immediately of two things. First, no ethnicity is superior than others in the sight of God. We are all the same. We are all the same and united by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus breaks any prejudice that we might have. And if you find it a hard time breaking the barriers of culture 
of language or racial barriers, just take a look at this picture of heaven. Because the church of God gathered in heaven is multi-ethnic. It is multi-ethnic. Second thing that uh, the description of this text reminds us is that God has his people among all nations. Among all nations. There is no nation that is excluded from this heavenly host. Just think of that for a second. This is the power of the gospel. Nationality, culture, language. They can be barriers for anything else, but not for the gospel. It is not a barrier for the gospel. And this is such an encouragement for missions. Jesus said himself, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. In response to that great commission, we should be involved somehow in missions. We should pray for it. Those of us who are able should, should try to support it financially. Those of us who understand ourselves called should engage in it ourselves. But we should. We should be always involved in missions. Another thing that we see in this vision is that this multitude is in heaven. And they worship God there. And this is our second point what they are doing. Verse 9 says that they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And we find there the angels of God as well. Together with the elders and the four living creatures, they form this big choir that worships God. They are celebrating victory and they ascribe that victory to God. This, the whole scene is about victory and about worship. And they wear these white robes and they hold in their hands these branches, these palm branches. Palm branches are a symbol of victory. They are a remembrance of the festival of the tabernacle. In Leviticus 23 verse 40, we find that. When the Israelites, this reminds the time when the Israelites commemorated their dwelling in tents under divine protection during their journey out of Egypt. You know the story. The Israelites were delivered from bondage in sin and they walked in the wilderness. After their deliverance, God ordained them to have this big festival in remembrance of what he had done for them. The victory over the enemy. This is what palm branches remember us of God's salvation and of God's preservation. We, as a spiritual Israel, we also walk in the wilderness of life. We walk between our deliverance from sin and the promised land. And we are preserved here in our pilgrimage by the same God who saved us. So what does heaven look like? Well, it is God on the throne. And the people of God gathered together with the angels of God. 
singing a heavenly song that ascribes victory to God. This is heaven. This is heaven. And this is what we are going to do in heaven. We are going to worship God. We are going to worship him. And this is the best thing that we can do in our lives. If you find, if you have a hard time coming to church on Sundays, if it's, if it's a burden to you, well, there's something wrong with your Christianity. God's people enjoy his presence. Think about that. If you love someone, if you love your spouse, your children, you want to be with them. You, you praise their qualities. So if we love God, we want to be with him. We want to, we want to praise him. We want really to praise him. We were made worshipers. We were made to worship God. Children, I, I think you know the first question and answer of Westminster Shorter Catechism. It teaches us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify, enjoying you know, this multitude is not praising God only because they are told to. But they do that with excitement, in a loud voice. In a loud voice. And what we have here in the public worship is a foretaste of heaven. God is present with us. We should praise Him in a loud voice, thanking Him. For what he has done for us. Saved us from sin. But also praising him. For the hope that awaits us in heaven. This is what we do here. And our third point is. The identity of the multitude. First clue about the identity of this crowd. Is that they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The word tribulation can mean pressure, oppression, affliction, distress. J.K. Buse says that in this context, it means pressure to compromise faith. It is a pressure to compromise faith. Pressures from within the church and pressures from without. Pressure Pressure from within, it speaks of the seducing teaching of heretics. Revelation 2.20 speaks against false teaching. The false teacher there is a woman who calls herself a prophetess. And she is named there as Jezebel. We recently studied uh, the second epistle of John. And there, John warns us. That in the last day, they will, become, they will become deceivers. They are very subtle in their talking. But they are perverting the basis, the fundamental of your faith. Perhaps they talk about Jesus, but they deny his deity. They speak highly about him, but they deny his humanity. And in any way, they diminish, they take from our Savior. And the church should be on alert against those errors. Pressure from without can, be, can take many forms. 
It can be persecution because of the gospel. We have an example on the letter to the church of Pergamon. It speaks of a believer called Antipas, who was probably killed because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In America, we still have the privilege to worship God and to share the gospel freely. But we know of places that if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be killed. In other places, you'll be ostracized. Back in Grand Rapids, we have this uh, multi-ethnic community of students. And uh, we hear of the Chinese people, for example, we hear of the church on the ground. I heard a testimony of a brother it was actually the testimony of his mom, and he was sharing with us that she came, she was in a company. She came from being a chief medical doctor in a big hospital to go to the lowest position in the company because she was a believer. Now, there is nothing wrong with the lower position, but the thing is that she was taken her title, her, her, actually, they were taking away her profession as a doctor. And the reason for that was her faith. It was her faith. In other places, sometimes, even in our context, the pressure to compromise can be economically oriented. And we have an example in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 8 and 9, with the church of Smyrna, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Some theologians have plausibly said that this tribulation is not confined to a period at the end of human history, but it's actually a period that it starts with Jesus' is coming into the world, and it will end only when he comes back. John says in the book of Revelation, he says that this is going to happen soon. The things revealed in this book are going to happen soon. In the first verse, of the first chapter. And he identifies himself with those who go through tribulation. It's you in chapter 1, verse 9. The church of Smyrna, again, is encouraged, encouraged to stand firm in face of imminent trial. So this is really a reality that began back when Jesus came into the world. And this tribulation will affect all Jesus' followers throughout human history until Jesus comes back. And the book of Revelation teaches us to stand firm even in face of death if it ever comes to that. And we stand trusting in the victorious Lamb for if we do so, we are going to share in his glory. 
You may have heard of people who say that they were Christians once, but they left the church for good because they went through hardship. They got a serious illness, or perhaps they went through a financial crisis, or they love, they, they lost loved ones. And uh, we don't want by any means to minimize people's suffering. But these people have actually embraced half of the gospel. Because the Bible speaks about tribulation. But it says that it, it will not break Christians, but it will refine them. It will refine them. And I trust that you also heard of good stories of people who having gone through similar or even harder trials, they had their faith refined. We find examples of that in the Bible. The example of Jacob, David, Paul himself, and others. But I believe you also heard encouraging stories of Christians in our days who faced trial, and they endured that at the feet of the cross. How did they do that? They look at the end. They have heaven step before their eyes. They see themselves in this glorious throne. They see themselves there. You probably know the story of Horatio Spafford, a successful attorney, a real estate investor who lost all his fortune in a great Chicago fire of 1871. Around the same time, he lost his four-year-old boy to the scarlet fever. Thinking that vacation would smooth things out for his family, he sent his wife and four daughters to England on a ship. On the way to England, the ship sunk about 200 people died, and among them, four of Horatio's children. They sunk, and his wife sent him a letter saying, Saved alone, what do I do? He immediately takes the next ship, and he goes to England. And when he passes by the place where the tragedy happened, the captain comes and tells Horatio that that was the spot of the tragedy. And the story tells us that in that moment, holding to his hope in Jesus Christ, he wrote a hymn that many of us have sung already. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the midst of his tribulation, he could, he could hold on to his faith, to his hope in Jesus Christ, and even to hope to, to see his children again in heaven. But there is more that we should take from this preview of heaven. The second information that the elder gives us 
about this multitude is that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One commentator argues that clothing is like second skin. Israel never appeared before God in dirty clothes. I'll give you one example only for time's sake. In Exodus 19.10, when Israel came out of Egypt and God was coming to Sinai, the Israelites were told to wash their clothes in preparedness to be ready for God's descent upon the mountain. They were asked, they were ordained to wash their clothes. White garment symbolically point to a kind of cleansing. What was their impurity? Well, it was the same as ours. It was their sin. And the only way that that, is can, that, that sins can, washed, can be washed is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a meritorious cleansing. Isaiah compares human actions of righteousness also as clothes. But how does he refer to it? They are polluted garment. Our best actions, because they spring from a sinful heart, when they come before the Holy God, they are no better than filthy rags. They cannot be any similar to these whitened robes that we see here. Their garment, the garment of this multitude, were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, their sins were forgiven. This multitude is in heaven now, brothers and sisters, not because they read more the Bible, not because they prayed more, It was not because of anything like that, but it was because they washed their robes in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them died for Jesus Christ. They shed their blood, but it was not on the basis of their blood that they were justified. They were martyrs, but the blood that justified them was the blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a simple truth. And nevertheless. A saving truth. A saving truth. And sometimes perverted. But we know that without the shedding of blood. This blood. There is no forgiveness of sin. It is a central theme throughout the scriptures. We cannot overemphasize it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. The Lord Jesus. This is why this heavenly choir in verse 10 sings, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's why they sing like that. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Notice that the answer to this question, who are these clothed in white robes, is not, well, it is so and so. We are not given a list of people, but instead, 
we have the features that describe all those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And allow me to ask you, is that you today? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Is he your only hope? Are you keeping yourself from compromising your faith before the pressures of the world? If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see yourself in this throne. You will share this eternal bliss. And this is our fourth and last point. The bliss of the multitude. There is in our text an allusion to a pilgrimage. The pilgrimage of of God's people. After they left Egypt on the way to the promising land. To the promised land. They are already celebrating their freedom from slavery. But they are not yet enjoying the promises of the promised land. They are endangered by hunger, thirst, and a scorching heat of the wilderness sun. The tabernacle of God among them, which means that God is with them, is the only guarantee that they will be preserved. That is what the tabernacle represents. The, the presence of God and what happened in Israel in the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament is a paradigm to what God does in a church throughout history. It's a paradigm. Delivering us, sustaining us, and bringing us to glory. That is what God does to us. If I had to, to pick a word, to describe this scene here, I would say fulfillment. And why? Because we already possess some of the heavenly blessedness, but we do not possess them in full. We have God with us, and yet sometimes we feel like He's distant. We have joy, and sometimes we see you experience bitterness. We are victorious, and yet sometimes we feel defeated. We are free from the dominion of sin, and that's an unspeakable joy. But yet, we are not free from its presence. And, that's, and we long for that day when Sin will be taken out of our sight. And we will enjoy God's presence in a more perfect way. This vision anticipates a time. It is this already and not yet is what the theologians describe like this. Already and not yet. We already have some of the heavenly blessedness. But not yet in full. And this vision anticipates the time when this not yet will be erased, erased from our, from our lives, because we will have everything in completion. All the consequences of sin will be taken away. No more threats from the enemy, no more sorrow, no more worldly pressure, but it is more than that. 
our deepest longing will be satisfied. Yes, uh, the Christian seek heavenly comfort, but it will not satisfy them if it's not accompanied by these spiritual blessings. Our spiritual blessings are fulfilled according to what we find in verse 15b. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I was evangelizing with a group back in Grand Rapids in a city actually close to Grand Rapids in Michigan, and I had this smart young girl asking me many difficult questions about Christianity. And a few of them struck me. Some of them were, why are you Christians so obsessed about heaven? Why do you want to go there so badly? What is it so special about it? You say, you criticize that we want money. You want to go there because of the gold? And I was, by God's grace, almost immediately the answer hit me. I do not normally think as fast as that, but it came kind of naturally. I answered her, heaven is not as much about a place as it is about God's presence. Heaven is about God's presence. I am obsessed about heaven because I am obsessed about my Savior. I am obsessed about Jesus. I want to be with him. He is the essence of heaven. Heaven is about the Lamb, the Lamb Shepherd, who died for his people and who will lead them with his presence. John saw no heaven in which God was not in the center. It was, it was Samuel Rutherford that said, Oh, my Lord Jesus! If I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. May these be our words as well. The expression found at the end of verse 15, that he will shelter in the original, conveys the idea of dwelling. And this is what people, God's people long for. For God dwelling among us. And that is what Jesus is for us. Emmanuel. God with us. So we will have our physical needs fulfilled. We will not hunger anymore. We will not thirst anymore. But more than that, we will have our spiritual uh, blessings, needs fulfilled. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And this makes, makes me think that I heard of, of people in Brazil, unbelievers say, make jokes. You know, I don't want to go to heaven. It's too boring. And I agree with them. If you do not love Jesus, if God is not your longing, you're not going to be happy in heaven. But if he is your all in all, you are going to be the happiest person 
that one can be. This is the Christian hope, to stand before God one day, before God's throne in heaven, washed by the blood of the Lamb, justified, spotless, no guilt counted against us, together with the angels of God, when God will wipe away all our tears. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, you are our only hope. Jesus, your Son, in whom we get to know you. He is our all in all. Oh Lord God, please stir, stir up in us the desire to be closer to you. Help us to look at this text, at this message, and be stirred up, be encouraged, be energized, O oh Lord, to face trials here as we wait to be in your more intimate presence in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.